So we begin our series of readings from Nehemiah, starting at chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the months of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, un unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. Let's pray. Father, we ask that the words you will give Peter will speak straight to our hearts, that we'll hear the voice of your Holy Spirit speaking to us this morning through Peter. And that, Lord, this will usher in a time of growth and blessing and healing and deeper relationship with you for us as your people here in this place. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Esther. Good morning to you all. As I was thinking about the sermon series to begin 2017 with, 
I'm still getting used to saying 2017, not 2016, but uh, as we enter this new year, I begin uh, and begun to get to know you as a church and had conversations with you. I've had the privilege of uh, meeting with you, uh, some of you a little bit uh, more personally, and, uh, and sort of just thinking about what is it that God wants us to be thinking through at this point in the life of our church. I do believe that God wants us to look at this book, Nehemiah. <coughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. I've just been drinking a bit of water. It's gone a long way. I, want to, I think he wants us to look at this book of Nehemiah, and it is a great book. I wonder if you've ever read it through before. Uh, you may be experts on Nehemiah. If you are, please let me know quickly so that I can look out for you and, and be aware of that. But uh, it is a great book. It's written, of course, by the best author ever, which is God. Uh, Nehemiah is, if you like, his co-author, but uh, it's got his name, Nehemiah. And it, in effect, it stars Nehemiah, but of course God is the main star of the story, but it does star Nehemiah, who wrote it as well. It's an old book. It was written 450 years before Christ, so that makes it 2,500 years old. It's an old story, and yet it has a story that has massive relevance to us today, as all the Bible does, of course. And it deals with um, big universal themes, big themes that we uh, struggle with as well in our time, things like courage and rejection and bravery and intrigue and other things as well. And I think it will speak into where we are as a church right now. Uh, I do think it's a story, as a, a book, uh, uh, a narrative that's really going to help us think through where we are as a church right now. I think it will help us to uh, consider how God is going to rebuild us as a church. Oh, thank you. It's very kind. Thank you. Uh, God will help us to rebuild this church, where those walls of trust have perhaps been broken down and destroy. God wants to encourage each and every one of us that we are his children, that we are part of his church, that he wants to use all of us in his great and powerful plan uh, to be people who are salt and light in a dark world. So let me encourage you to listen out what is God saying to us as we look at this book together in church and in other places, in home groups as well, of course. What is God saying to us? Share with each other about what is God saying uh, with each other. Uh, feed them back to myself and other leaders And let's share the encouragements that we're hearing about. So let's get on with it. Let's get into it. The study of the life of Nehemiah, the study of this book. He's one of the great leaders of the Old Testament. He was leading the people of God at a difficult time in their history. And what we find is that particularly uh, right here in chapter 1 is that Nehemiah, you see, bases his life, bases his, his walk with God in prayer. He's a prayerful man. And we're going to look at the prayer that opens this book. And we're going to see how that introduces us to the, to the character of Nehemiah and introduces us to the situation that he's in and, of course, what will follow. And, and God is, I think, calling us through this to a deeper and fuller life of prayer. I think that's the, the overarching uh, challenge that God is going to lay before us. But a little bit of history. We've got to put this in context a bit to understand where it's, where it's coming from. I'm sure you know that the, the land of Israel, that the whole country of Israel, was made up of 12 tribes, and uh, the 10 tribes of the north of the, uh, these 10 northern tribes um, uh, basically went off uh, after the death of Solomon. There was a judgment that was made on those 10 tribes after the death of Solomon. And those tribes called themselves Israel, while the southern tribes were called Judah. And basically things went from bad to worse at that time. Occasionally you had good kings, occasionally you had bad kings, 
And uh, you have the bad kings who are really quite rotten kings, and they led the people to, to worship idols and so on. And so God sent prophets to, to bring, to try and bring his people back into following him, worshipping him. And they warned them of the danger of going the wrong way. And the danger of exile if they continue to go the wrong way. Sadly, finally, the northern tribes of Israel were judged. God acted. And, then, and so in uh, 722 BC, 722 before Christ, the northern kingdoms were overrun by the empire of Assyria. And all of that population was taken off and never seen again. Uh, those people were uh, basically replaced by foreigners who became the Samaritans, the Samaritans we know from Jesus' day, who were sort of related to the Jews, but not proper Jews, or not pure Jews. And then in 586 BC, Jerusalem uh, falls to a different empire, the Babylonian Empire. And then these people in the, the southern two tribes of Judah are then taken into exile in Babylon. Moving on in time, in 539 BC, there's a, a Persian emperor called Cyrus, uh, sorry, Cyrus, who overruns Babylon, and the Persians uh, then become the big, uh, the big emperor of the day, the most powerful empire. Cyrus is important because Cyrus's policy of integrating religions was really key at this time, and he allowed the, the local groups to have their own religions, whereas he could have said, no, we're going to have one religion, and that's the one that was of the Persians. No, he said, I will let you have your own different religions. And that is when the Jews first had the opportunity of going back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild the temple. And they also started at that point, in uh, about 540 BC, to build the walls around Jerusalem. And you can read about that in Ezra. Ezra is a, Ezra is a book complete, just before Nehemiah and very closely related to Nehemiah. Meanwhile, back in Babylon... Some of the Jews go to a city called Susa. Susa is where the uh, Persian kings have their summer holidays, and they move there with, with the, these uh, uh, Babylonians. Sorry, uh, very confusing. The Persian um, armies. And then you have an interesting little kind of link with another story in the Old Testament called Daniel, which you'll know about, I'm sure. Daniel, very famous story. Daniel and his three friends who are trained up by the, the Nebuchadnezzar, the king of that time, uh, trained up to be palace officials. Like Daniel, Nehemiah has been trained up to be an official in the palace of the king. He's a young man, we don't know how old he is, but he's been raised up to be uh, one of the king's employees in his palace, to some influence in his palace. What does he do? Well, we find out at the end of chapter 1. Very clearly, very simply, it says, I was cupbearer to the king. So he's cupbearer to the king. What does that mean? Well, he basically serves the emperor himself. He has very personal access to the emperor. He is a, someone of influence, uh, someone who was also in a place of danger. Being the cupbearer, he tastes the wine, he tastes the drink that the king can drink. So if, basically, the, if the wine is poisoned, he gets it. He's, he's dead, basically. Uh, so he's like a secret service agent. They're the ones who kind of go around the president of the United States and other uh, big rulers like that. He is protecting the king, the ruler. And so he's got a, a very powerful job, but a, a very dangerous job. Who wants to be that job? Certainly wouldn't be me. On the positive side, he is trusted. He's got a place of great trust placed in him. Uh, why has he been chosen as cupbearer? Well, we don't know, but probably because he's reliable, uh, he's quick-witted, he's got initiative. Also because he grasps the palace politics. What's going in the palace? And he's grasping hold of that, understanding it. 
And so he would have had a relationship with the, with the ruler, the most powerful man in the world at the time. That's going to be handy to him in the days and the weeks and the months to come. So that's the scene. That's the sort of the setting of the scene. This is the palace of a king called Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And Nehemiah is well-trained, like Daniel before him. Nehemiah has been well-trained as, as a Jew in his faith. He knows the scriptures. He knows the Bible. He longs for the day when he will see Jerusalem for himself. One day, we're told, he has a visitor. Verse 2, Hanani. Hanani comes to see him. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So there he is. He's visited by a man called Hanani, who is, is what it says, one of his brothers. Could have been a brother, could have been a cousin, could have been a relation of other, other sorts. But Nehemiah has this visitor, and he is eagerly awaiting news of Jerusalem. What is going on in Jerusalem? Longing to see that city that he has never, ever seen. But the news is bad. It's bad news. Verse 3 tells us the news. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Bad news. The walls of Jerusalem, these walls that have begun to be uh, built up again, the gates that have been begun to be restored, they have been destroyed by fire. So you can imagine those few exiles who've been allowed to return uh, being really demoralized as their work is destroyed. What you ha what's happening basically is the tribes around uh, Jerusalem, who are pagan tribes, again have been attacking Jerusalem. They don't want Jerusalem to be restored, so they've been attacking. And so this is one of those moments when you would well be uh, forgiven for asking the question, why? Why hasn't God answered our prayers? The Jews have been praying and, and praying and seeking God for years and years. Why isn't Zion being restored? Why is it happening again? And I'm sure you've felt that sense of frustration in your life with God. Why, God, aren't you acting? Why do you take so long to answer my prayers? But if you know the Bible at all, you'll know that the Bible tells us, and you'll know from your own experience as a Christian, that God works to a different timetable to ours. His timetable is not our timetable. His plans aren't always our plans. And so sometimes we have to wait patiently for God to act and to answer. But it doesn't make it any easier, does it? So verse 4 tells us how Nehemiah responds, how it's affecting Nehemiah. He says, he writes, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So he's been hit like a, a thunderbolt right in his heart, in his soul. He's thrown into a deep depression. He sits down and he weeps and he mourns and he fasts and he prays to God and probably asks that question, why? And it's interesting, isn't it? Those prayers of his at that time of, of real disquiet, real anguish. And that's probably, if you were to ask yourself or ask each other, when is it you find it easiest to pray? Probably it's at that time of when you're getting really, you know, something's coming against you. That's when your prayers become passionate, when you're praying to God, please help me in whatever situation it is. 
It's at those times that our, we realise our prayers are we're utterly dependent on God for his help. But what about when things are going well? When, what do you pray when things are going well? What about when things are going fine in your life? Do we still ask God for help? It's at those times we need to remind ourselves that God is the one we're totally dependent on for our well-being, our guidance, and our wisdom. And another interesting thing comes out of this verse is that we're not actually told what he prays during that time. If you read through Nehemiah, there are nine specific prayers recorded uh, in his book, but we're not told exactly what he's praying as he sits down and he weeps and he fasts. We can guess. We can sort of make a guess as to what he's praying. Uh, he's praying for wisdom, no doubt. Uh, praying for wisdom. What do they do as he's heard this news about Jerusalem? You can tell from the, cont- of the, uh, the content of the prayer he's praying at the end of this uh, period of prayer and fasting. We'll get to that prayer in a moment. But what he's doing is he's having a conversation with God. It's not just, not just him talking to God, it's God speaking to him. And when we pray, it's not just, you know, we're not speaking into the ether. We are having a conversation with God. God is speaking to us as we speak to him. He wants to communicate with us as we pray. He'll put a a thought into your mind as you pray. He might put a Bible verse in your mind as you pray. He might put somebody in in your mind, in your heart, that he wants you to go and speak to about something. As we pray, we're communicating with God, and God is communicating with us. So here, as Nehemiah prays, God speaks to him. In fact, by the time he's finished praying, he's got a plan. He's formulated a plan, and we get to that in chapter 2 next week. Let's not jump ahead. But he's been fasting, he's been praying for some days, and then finally he puts his prayer together in the words we have before us from verse 5 onwards. So what a prayer it is. What a model prayer it is. He begins his prayer, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. If you're going to pray, know who you're praying to. If you're going to pray, know who it is you're praying to. Isn't that a good idea? I think it is. We're not just praying to some amorphous God. We're praying to a real God. We're praying to a God who is listening to us. Nehemiah knows who he's praying to. And what he knows about God gives him confidence to pray specifically to God. Notice how he addresses God. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. What he's going to be seeking, what he's going to be asking is not an easy thing to do. He's got a difficult journey ahead of him. He needs a powerful God who is going to be with him. God, he knows, is powerful. He knows he's almighty. He knows he has the power to change the world and to shape the events of the world, to shape even the mind of a pagan king like Artaxerxes. He's the God of the universe, the God of the cosmos. In one of the Christmas readings we had in Luke, we heard, it says, for no word from God will ever fail. He's a powerful God. And yet he's a personal God. We've got these two sides of God very powerfully coming through. He's a powerful God, but he's a personal God. We need someone who is attentive to us personally, who's listening to us personally, who is listening to our prayers. And so you see what he says next in verse 5. The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him 
and keep his commandments. What's he doing? He's saying, he's recalling what God has done. He's recalling the great acts of God. He's telling God, if you like, how great he is. What amazing things you've done. You've freed your people from slavery. You led them through the Dead Sea, through the Red Sea. You led them through the wilderness of 40 years. You brought them into the promised land, to the land that you promised to Abraham and his descendants forever. You are a great God, he is saying to God. And maybe there are some of you here today who are struggling with asking God for help. Whether you deserve God's help. Whether you're good enough to receive his attention and his attentiveness. It says, doesn't it, those who keep his covenant. He keeps his covenant and his steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Do we do that? Do we keep all his commandments? Well, that's where the gospel comes in. Because we don't. And that's why we need his grace. His grace comes in. And so we say the confession each week. And we're reminded that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God forgives us because of the gospel of Jesus. And so we're made new and can walk with him. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He confesses the sins of the people. And he says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. And so God's judgment is just. They have ignored him. They have disobeyed him. They've gone the wrong way. They worship false gods. They've allowed injustice to flourish. And so they got their just rewards. So now Nehemiah is standing and praying to God as their representative and confessing their sin, the sin of the whole nation. He's praying on behalf of the nation. He is their representative. He's praying for the Jewish people. They've got it wrong, he's saying. We've got it wrong. We've got our own way. We need to go the right way, God's way. And that applies to us as a church here, at Christ Church. To each of us as individuals who make up this church, each of us can pray that God will lead us in the right way, God's way. Each of us can pray the prayer that Nehemiah prays in verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you. You don't need to be a member of PCC. You don't need to be a church warden. You have that gift of prayer as a child of God. Each of us has that wonderful gift of prayer. You can pray powerfully. You can pray effectively because you're a child of God. We can pray for our nation. You can pray for the leaders of the nation. You can pray for the leaders of the world. That is the gift that God has given to us as children of God. And so Nehemiah uh, pleads for forgiveness for his nation. He pleads with God for help. And notice the basis on which he's pleading. What he's doing is, and you may not uh, know this, but he's using particular verses from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 30. He's using his knowledge of scripture to tell God, to say to God, to remind God of his promises. That if they were uh, faithful to him, he would forgive them and bring them back to Jerusalem. And so as he pleads with God, he reminds uh, him that they are his chosen people, his servants. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and mighty hand. 
This is a nation that God has redeemed from Egypt with his hand. And what he's saying here is that this is for the glory of God. This is for the glory of God's eternal plan to restore Jerusalem. And again, it's a reminder to us, as we pray, we pray in the name of Jesus, don't we? And if you bring in the name of Jesus into your prayer, what that's doing is that you're praying using his name. And if you pray using the name of Jesus, then you need to remember that you're bringing Jesus into your prayer. So your prayer needs to honour Jesus. We don't have a blank check. We have this, this, we, we praying for Jesus' sake, for the sake of Jesus, that the name of Jesus would be raised up and glorified. And so Nehemiah is doing here. What he's saying is, I'm praying for your glory, God, that your name would be glorified. And then he makes this big request in verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This is the culmination of his praying. This is the the, the high point of his prayer. He's been praying, he's been fasting, he's been seeking God, and yet a little bit, seems a little bit trivial. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man being Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. It's a big build-up to what looks like a little request. But what's been going through his mind? You can imagine he's been thinking about all sorts of things. What can I ask this man to do? What can I ask uh, Artaxerxes to do? Oh, I know, I'll get him to bring his armies in and, and, and get rid of the opposition. I'll, I'll ask the, the, the Persian emperor to just wipe them all out because he's the most powerful man. Get someone else to fight the battles. No. What's, do, what's happening here is, as he's praying, God is raising up a leader. And what he's doing as he's been praying is that Nehemiah begins to realize that, in fact, he is the leader that God is raising up. That passion he's been feeling of the name of God being glorified and honored and so on, that is the passion of God that's been working in him as he's been praying. And that's, again, how prayer works. As we pray, God works in us the answer sometimes as we pray. That answer that we've been praying for, we can, in fact, be part of the answer to. And so as he's prayed, he's meditated, he comes up with a plan. All it needs is for this man to be favorable. The NRSV translation of verse 11 says, Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Strategically, he needs mercy. He needs the emperor to be merciful as he stands before him, as he speaks to him. I said at the start, Nehemiah has been chosen because he's reliable, because he's quick-witted, because he understands palace politics, but there's more to it than that. He is there because he's a man of spiritual maturity. He's been raised in that because of the situation he's in. He knows God's word. He knows that God will bring about his promises. And he's prayed it through. We'll hear more about Nehemiah next week and the weeks to come, about the mission to rebuild Jerusalem. But the lesson here is prayer. Prayer is the first step in any godly enterprise. Before anything else, we need to pray.
Pray that we will recognize the greatness and power of God. Pray that we will acknowledge our our unworthiness and trust that God will keep his promises that he's made to his people. So as I finish, how are we going to live that out here at Christ Church in Basin Hill? Well, it's a clear message, isn't it? It's a clear application for us as his people. Make prayer that high priority, both as individuals and as a church. So can I urge you to do that? Can I encourage you to do that? Get in your home group and pray. Maybe if you're in that prayer triplet, obviously, pray. Come to prayers here at 9.15 on a Tuesday morning if you can. Pray at home, pray as a family, pray as individuals. But we also need to pray collectively, I think, a little bit more than perhaps we are at the moment. So maybe we can have a day of prayer at the start of Lent in a few weeks' time. But that's enough for now. Lots to think about. So let's pray together now. Father, we acknowledge your greatness, your glory, your might, your majesty, your power. We acknowledge that we are unworthy, and yet because of Jesus, we stand in your presence. We can plead with you for mercy. We are forgiven because of the blood of the Lamb. Lord, would you in your mercy turn to us and bring about all those promises that you have for us as a church, promises that you have made in the past, promises you have made to us as as individuals, promises you have made to this fellowship. Would you walk with us through the journey that is to come? And as we look to you, the great and glorious God, you will stand with us. You will help us to stand firm. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.